You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. This episode of the Grace Saves All podcast centers around the topic of Gnosticism, a much derided, much misunderstood religious phenomenon of the ancient world in which early Christianity existed. Even the term Gnosticism is controversial in itself because the use of a single term to describe this diffuse religious orientation implies a unity of thought and practice which did not actually exist among its adherents in the period of late antiquity. The diverse and idiosyncratic nature of Gnosticism creates a kind of dense fog around the topic. However, we are fortunate to have with us on this episode Dr. David Bentley Hart to guide us through the haze of ancient Gnosticism to see what can be said about it with some degree of clarity. And so, Dr. Hart, thank you for taking the time to speak with us about Gnosticism, even though you've been writing so much about it lately in your Substack newsletter that you'd probably enjoy it much more if we were discussing, say, Japanese aesthetics, literature, or perhaps most of all, the memory of Frank Robinson. (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, I, I get choked up when I think about Frank, so I don't know if I can say I enjoy such conversations, but, uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's been uh i i undertook on the on the uh substack site after several requests i don't really like writing to requests but i got several requests uh asking about uh gnosticism and modernity because of an essay i had published and uh, i have been talking about it a lot lately but um you know why not finish it out i think today i put this very day on the newsletter, the last article in that series appeared, so it's probably a good time to try to sum up the conversation. Well, uh, Dr. Hart, Winston Churchill once described Russia as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, and from reading your recent articles on Gnosticism in your Substack newsletter, Leaves in the Wind, I gather that much the same thing could be said about Gnosticism, yet you still believe it's a topic worth consideration if for no other reason than how it is that appreciating ancient Gnosticism helps us to get more in touch with the thought world and cosmology we see in the New Testament, especially in the writings of John and Paul. So let me begin by asking, Dr. Hart, what of value might we retrieve by wading through the ancient morass of so-called Gnosticism? Well, for one thing, we, we might retrieve a more accurate understanding of Christian tradition uh, 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 than generally prevails. Uh, part, of, part of the pernicious effect of the invention of the category of Gnosticism, I'm not saying it's a category without content, but, but it's somewhat overdetermined, is that um, alongside some of the things that seem more outlandish and that uh, genuinely uh, seem to be idiosyncratic about the various schools that we denominate, as Gnostic, there are many elements of their beliefs that they shared in common with the early Christians and and many Jews of late antiquity and many pagans. And those two tend, uh, in the minds of many, to be dismissed as 
part of a Gnostic phenomenon rather uh, rather than a part of the common religious grammar of the time. And this produces, or at least preserves or sustains a distorted view of early Christianity. Because much of, um, much of what the early so-called Gnostic schools believed, many of the things, in fact, that, that strike us as strange and alien as emanating from some religious sensibility we don't immediately recognize are already present in the New Testament and are especially, especially present in the theology of Paul and of the fourth gospel. So part of the, the interest in Gnosticism, I think, should be uh, learning, you know, l- learning to appreciate what it was and what it wasn't, and how it fitted into its time and how it didn't, and what it shared with with nascent ortho- Christian orthodoxy and what it didn't. And then there's, I think, subjoined to this the the, the uh, issue of whether or not Gnosticism as a recurring phenomenon, and in some sense it has been a recurring phenomenon in Christian history. You can point to some very notable analogs, if not direct uh, genealogical descendants of the early Gnostic cults, like the Albigensian, you know, the Cathars, for instance. Um, whether the, that recurrence tells us anything about either Christianity or about uh the way Christianity fits into the world. And finally, I'd say uh, just because, um, and this is what actually started the series of articles, it's become a matter of almost casual habit to use the word Gnostic on the part of certain polemicists who regard themselves as traditional Christians, to use the word Gnostic to uh, condemn every aspect of modernity that they dislike actually to the point of absurdity, because the one thing that seems to me most clear is that modernity, taken as in its totality as the phenomenon of post-Christian Western culture, is, if anything, the least Gnostic expression of, uh, of a sort of Christian culture imaginable. Uh, that, it, that if there is a, a Gnostic presence in late modernity, it has nothing to do with the reigning habits of thought or cultural patterns or ideologies of our time, but but what could exist only as a kind of dissident fringe. And uh, though that's the third consideration here, it was the first consideration that led to these articles on Substack, um, because we misuse the word with such wanton and grandiose uh, abandon that, that we, we start making a nonsense not only of it, but what it is we think we're affirming when we talk about Christianity and its, I don't know, agon with, with late modern culture. Well, the, one of the things that, that your articles helped me to appreciate is just the sense of struggle that, that people in the ancient world felt not only with the more difficult living situation in which many more than in which death was a much more present threat, but the sense that that overarching them were angelic emanations, archons, that we don't think of in the same way that they did, that there were these malevolent archons that were in a sense trapping them in this evil material world. And just really the darkness, the, the darkness of their situation and their struggle to find 
hope and belief that there was a light and a goodness somehow up above all of this. And they might in some way, if they could just have the right knowledge, maybe transcend through the darkness. Yeah. And uh, as I say, this is just part of the religious grammar of late antiquity. Some of the, uh, you know, the exotic quality that certain of the Gnostic scriptures have for modern readers have to do with, uh, in part, traditions of translation uh, uh, or conventions of translation. Uh, because they, they uh, you know, a person who doesn't read Greek picks up a, a translation of a Gnostic document. And in addition to the genuinely bizarre mythological material, reads about archons, you know, and... Uh, uh, and uh, how this world lies under their power and, and uh, how the, the, the heavens above are thronged with these hostile powers, blithely unaware that the New Testament uses exactly that same language. It's just that traditionally the, the word archon gets rendered as ruler or prince or whatever. And all too often, the uh, reference of the language being used, especially in Paul, is transposed from its actual referent in the heavenly places above to human uh, powers and principalities. We, 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 so the language flies past us. But we find this as a recurrent motif in a lot of Jewish and Christian and pagan thought of the time that that uh, salvation is an escape through the heavens to the higher heaven of God, and that that way has been blocked by by malevolent powers. Now, you said that you know they want to trap us in this material creation. There we have a question of a matter of degree. Yeah, I mean, um, for the genuinely dualist move, movements that we call Gnostic. The lower creation is entirely alien to God, uh, but there's a qualified and fairly strong dualism already in the New Testament that even if uh, it, it you know, doesn't assert a second creator principle, nonetheless sees this present age and this world under the governance of, of the God of this age, you know, the, the archon of this cosmos, and of the uh, subsidiary powers that, that that serve him, and as Paul says, uh, you know, our, our struggle isn't with flesh and blood, but with the archons, you know, the powers right. and principalities in the high places, meaning literally uh, in the heavens. Mystery, there are mystery religions that that had the uh, that shared this vision of reality. The Orphic religions that believe that you know we. We're, 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 there, there is a, we're sort of a, a mixed nature, and our truly spiritual nature seeks to ascend again through the heavens. Uh, and that, and that uh, for many, we fell into this world, our souls, and as they fell, they were progressively cloaked in, in the alien elements of the spheres above. I mean, this, this imagery, though there are huge variations in it, nonetheless seems to be a constant. The great the great anxiety regarding salvation in much of Greco-Roman late antiquity is the anxiety of escape from a prison. Mm -hmm. 
Now, for Paul, of course, eschatologically also, there's going to come, uh, uh, the age to come will actually overcome these archons entirely, subdue them, and God will be all in all, and they will be put back in order in the proper way, you know. But in the present age, they definitely seem to be, you know, <laughs> running rampant at times, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and they, are, they are, for now, our adversaries. Well, this conversation has certainly highlighted for me in, in a different kind of way what Paul might have meant when he taught that flesh and blood cannot inherit the, the kingdom. And so when he talked about spirit, then that was an element that was not less substantial, but more substantial. And uh, could yeah. you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it depends on what you mean by substantial. I mean, it was less coarse, that's true, but it was more, more powerful, more substantial in the sense that it was, it, it was uh, not perishable, could not be uh, destroyed in the same way that flesh and blood can. Yeah, I mean, it, it became something of a, a, an unfortunate trope in a lot of uh, Protestant theology, but not only Protestant theology, that when Paul speaks of the flesh in an opprobrious way, somehow what he really means is just sinful human nature and that in the end of the day uh, he, he meant to affirm the goodness of the flesh and this simply isn't the case. I mean, he meant what he said, flesh and blood being intrinsically the body of death, you know, the members of the body of death that, 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 that clothe us, the outer man, is a mortal, is a mortal body that cannot be redeemed. Uh, that, that, you know, he's quite clear about this. And his thinking, I think, in part was influenced by uh, pervasive, generalized way in which certain kinds of Stoic metaphysics and other metaphysical systems had produced uh, a lot of scientific and phil philosophical language in his time of seeing spirit as uh, not as we would, you know, in our post-Cartesian way, think of spirit as, as wholly some sort of disembodied uh, intellect, but, ra mm -hmm. but, but rather literally a kind of higher physical reality, one that's enjoyed in the spiritual bodies of, of say, angels or stars, ethereal bodies, uh, pneumatic bodies, as he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, seem very much to be the same thing for him. So you know, even there, there's no, there's the 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 uh, you know one one uh, rather hackneyed claim made about the difference between the Gnostics and the Christians is that the early Christians cherished the body and and revered the flesh and so on and so forth, and that the Gnostics were rather bizarre and aberrant with regard to Christian belief and their disdain for the flesh. And I, I just this is unsustainable. It's based on a on a uh, transparently uh, forced and, and in, uh, false reading of the New Testament, and it's simply not true to its time. Uh, when, when Paul speaks of a spiritual body, now, mind you, there, there are those who resist to this day, there are those who for ideological reasons in New Testament studies will claim otherwise. N.T. Wright, who's kind of invented his own version of, of, of Christianity for the for late antiquity, it's not really there in the New Testament or basically anywhere else in the tradition, but it's the one he's he's sort of created for it. 
he will argue that a spiritual body is just this body, but now animated by divine spirit rather than an animal soul. But but Paul's <laughs> that's exactly what Paul does not say. You know, uh, animated is 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 not the point. He's speaking of the difference uh, between a body that is inherently mortal because it is of flesh and blood, which cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, as he says, and a body that is composed of spirit. And I think that this was a common belief, maybe even among the Pharisees of his time, that, that in the resurrection we will receive bodies like the bodies of angels, which are of a spiritual or ethereal nature and are therefore able to exist. Not only are they immortal, indivisible, and so forth, but able to exist in the heavenly places as uh, our bodies cannot and that we'll be able to enter into the transformed creation of the age to come. Well, one of the things that that makes sense to me is how people in what you might call a Gnostic framework uh, would have been drawn to Jesus as a bringer of light into this world and and a way of kind of being almost a transitionary figure between the high God that they would have thought about and this world and who came to bring us light and knowledge. And so they would have gravitated. They would have, there would have been a lot for them to like in what they were hearing about Jesus. Well, I mean, I, I tend to think that the Gnostic uh, sects, as we call them, are for the most part grew out of the early Christian communities. I don't think of them as an external movement that adopted Christ. Uh, there may be some movements uh, that did something like that, but I think the evidence is overwhelmingly that they were an endogenous development. But they were, you know, we can see this in degrees already. I mean, much of the language that becomes exaggerated and hyper-mythical in, say, uh, what we know of the Sethian cults, the Sethian sects, the Sethian churches, call them what you want, is already, you can already see uh, in, a, in, in a somewhat more moderate but still pretty striking form in the Gospel of John. I mean, very much there. The story of salvation, first of all, has to do with a kind of invasion of the darkness of a world under the reign of the archon of this. Hey, I mean, that's the, the language you know, he uses, um, be of good cheer, I have overthrown the cosmos. I mean, it's, it's, this is not, you know, this is not the language of simple reconciliation. It's one of a savior who repeatedly says, I am from above, so I have seen, you know, the, the things I've seen you haven't seen because you're from below. He, he says he's come in, you know, he, he's descending into the darkness, casting a tent of flesh about himself. That's what it really says, you know. Uh, uh, in in the prologue to John, you know, he tabernacled, uh, and, um, uh, and that that it, you know by his by his uh, being lifted up on the cross and dragging all of all everyone to himself there already he has overthrown. And even before that, he already proclaims that he has overthrown uh, the ruler of this world. Um, well, the, that, that language is not conspicuously different from the salvation narratives that we find prodigally scattered throughout the, uh, the, the so-called Gnostic literature. Again, 
where they differ quite often is uh, the degree to which uh, they will take this dualism beyond the question of who rules the present darkness to whether or not the present darkness is the special creation of that ruler rather than of God himself. And here, too, we have to remember that all the systems of the time, including the Christian system of thought, thought of the Father or the Most High God or God in his absolute transcendence, not as the direct creator of this world. He was always understood as creating through a secondary principle, or or rather I should say, we could, we, we could say that the, you know, the world in all of these systems is the direct creation of a secondary divine uh, agent. Now, mm-hmm. For Orthodox tradition, they, they affirm the continuity between that agency and the Father. Uh, what we call the Gnostics, it seems, clearly see the the, the secondary agent as a fallen uh, demiurge who's not really spiritually continuous with 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 the, with God Most High. But even that notion, the idea that this world uh, is not immediately the creature of the father is not is would not have seemed alien and outlandish at the time as i say these are matters very much of degree the gospel of john starts by telling us that the world was created by the logos you know all things came to be through him or by him were all things made and then it tells of the logos uh, you know, invading this the, 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 the darkness in which we live in order to, to set the captives free. And in making the creator and the savior one and the same, showing them to be one and the same figure, there you have the dividing line. But you also realize that narratively, morphologically, what the Gnostic sects are saying would not have seemed like some you know, altogether bizarre picture of reality that had come from nowhere. It would have fallen within the continuum of religious expectations and of, co- and of the cosmology of the time. Well, now that we discussed about how appreciating Gnosticism can help us to see early Christianity perhaps more clearly, maybe we can discuss how understanding early Christianity can help us to see Gnosticism more clearly. So how does the Christian revelation of God in Christ then contrast with the understanding of God in ancient Gnosticism? Well, I mean, you know, a part of that we've covered already in that, uh, in that uh, the Orthodox or proto-Orthodox, because of course we have to understand that a lot of the traditions that got assumed into the Orthodox narrative were in their own time at somewhat sometimes in tension with one another. But one of the things they all had in common was they understood, uh, the, you know, the, the God who had come to save them is also the creator of this world, and that the condition of this world uh, in its in its subjection to malevolent powers is the result of a of a, of a pre-cosmic catastrophe, but that uh, or of a sorry of a let's just say a primordial catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, but and also I want to be I want to be careful here because, of course, another contrast we're often asked to believe existed between the so-called Gnostics and the Orthodox, where the, you know, 
salvation for the, the for, for the Gnostics uh, consists in having a secret knowledge that allows you uh, a way of escape. And there's some element of truth in that. But you know the, the Gospel of John, but also Paul. You know they they speak quite a lot about the wisdom and the knowledge, the saving knowledge and the w- saving wisdom that Christ imparts. But I, I think I, th- I think that. Uh, what you would have to say is that, the, 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 that on the one hand, the obvious difference is that the dualism of the New Testament is a qualified dualism. It's one that's overcome, and in being overcome, reveals a more original harmony uh, between God and creation. And that also the union with God that occurs in Christ for, for, the, for the Orthodox communities is a unity that that, that progressively is understood as a real union with the Father. I don't think it's the case, I really don't, that, that for, say, the Sethians, there's ever a real union between the saved and the most high divine principle called Father or Bethos or whatever. I think he always remains inaccessible uh, and beyond all relation. Uh, it's hard to say, but that seems to be the evidence of the, of the remaining literature. And to a degree, a lot of early Christians might have felt that way as well. To be honest, that uh, you know that 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 the Father is so transcendent and so inaccessible that, in some sense, those joined to Him by Christ uh, are still, as it were, joined at a distance. Uh, but that's very much the story of fourth century theology, you know, with, with you know how we understand precisely that question. In a very strange but very important way, that was the real question animating the debate over the Nicene Creed, for instance. Mm-hmm. The, whether you know, when we talk about the co-equality of, of the Father and Son or the consubstantiality, what we're really talking about uh, at one remove is the soteriological narrative, whether or not in Christ God himself has drawn near. And I think that that, uh, you know, the the, the Gnostics, one way or another, had a vision of salvation in which that, that distance remains fixed in place, whereas there was a kind of dynamism and uh, a sort of inevitable, almost, I to say dialectical, but let's just say a kind of rational necessity in the claims that, that the apostolic church made that moved more and more towards the more radical claim that, that uh, in Christ we had direct access to the Father himself, to, to the fullness of God, uh, and to be joined to God of God and thereby to become gods in God. Um, as high a view as the Gnostics had of the spiritual nature of certain persons, that is, those who could be saved, the pneumatics. In the end, the Christian uh, Orthodox tradition has a much higher view because it actually uh, is a discourse of deification that allows for a union between creatures and God even in the absolute and mysterious depths of his nature, as father. And that's the, and in that sense, the Orthodox tradition is the more radical. Well, the, one of the things that I've, I mean, 
I've been trying to read through some of the Nag Hammadi Gnostic scriptures, and it's just bewildering, at least it has been for me, to try to put put much order to it. Yeah. Uh, Right, there is no. I mean, the very concept of Gnosticism as as a single category of thought—that's a 17th century uh, notion. It's, I think, Henry Moore, you know, the great English Platonist Christian. I think is the first one who, borrowing from Irenaeus, you know, we can say that you know Irenaeus spoke of those who offer a false knowledge, but he didn't denominate them all as 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 fitting together into some single movement called Gnosticism. That's that's an early modern categorization. So you're not going to find profound unity in the texts from the different traditions. Yeah, I couldn't tell from reading if if salvation was possible for all human beings or just possible for for the certain pneumatic spiritual mm-hmm. beings or if it was if it was a possibility if you for everybody but only if you were awakened by the by receiving the the knowledge that you had this spiritual capacity do you see any um anything clearly about that within the gnostic well, literature according to those who who were contemporary with them and knew them their great critics Irenaeus Origen Plotinus among the uh, the pagans if you take their accounts and then you see how much of it is validated by by these recovered Gnostic documents? And a great deal of it is. I mean, it turns out that a lot of those those polemical accounts are pretty accurate. Not, I think that there's some things in Irenaeus that are probably wrong, but not drastically wrong. Uh, the evidence suggests that this was a highly aristocratic religion. That is, they viewed, they didn't believe that all persons actually had the element of spirit in them. I mean, there, remember, in the New Testament, the spirit, you know, in Paul's language, but in other books, already we have a lot of ambiguity about what the word spirit means, pnevma. Uh, I mean, and I'm not talking just about the spiritual body and all that. I mean, quite often in Paul, you can't tell if he means for there to be a distinction between, between human spirit and divine spirit. And there's a verse in Jude that that's, you know, speaks of psychical men who don't possess the spirit, pneuma. Now, translations again and again, as I say, obscure this. I mean, they'll add, helpfully add things they shouldn't, like turn just the word not having spirit into not have, having received the Holy Spirit or something in Jude, which is not what the text says. Uh, but from the New Testament on the whole, it's pretty clear from Paul that anyone either already has or can uh, and can receive in greater measure or can receive the divine spirit, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the spirit within us is already, in some sense, the, uh, the, the Pinoe, you know, the breath of God in the Septuagint or Nishama, the Shama, that Yahweh breathed into Adam, that that's a universal human property. Well, um, but because the language in the New Testament does distinguish between those who are pneumatics and those who are psychics, again, translations often obscure this, I I think it's probably true that the so-called Gnostic sects 
took this just as they did with the qualified dualism of the New Testament. They took it into a, took it to an extreme form and saw it as a genuine ontological difference. The story that we have, for the most part, and that seems to be corroborated as well as it can be by the text, is that all of the major systems, Valentinian, Bazilidean, Sethian, what have you, believed that there was a, a, you know, there were there were human beings who were spiritual by nature, who had fallen to this realm. There were human beings who were not, but were psychical and maybe through the benevolence of the Savior could achieve a kind of salvation of second tier salvation or, or and that a great many of uh, the great many human beings are just somatics. They're just sort of automated bodies almost. They, they don't they don't possess and they cannot be saved. There's absolutely no evidence of any universalist Gnostics act. I mean that's I mean this nothing of the sort exists. It's not impossible uh, that, that that something like like that was possible. I mean, it's not absolutely impossible, but all the evidence tells us it wasn't the case. Well, the uh, that's one of the problems of that Gnosticism seems to be a bit of a grab bag that you well, can it is yeah. you can pull a lot of different things. Orthodox Christianity that God that that the the goodness of the God of creation was preserved, whereas in the Gnostic version of Christianity, they believe that that this this creation and the God that they found in in the Old Testament, the Creator God, was a demiurge, and was not the High God, and that seemed right. like a that was a very drastic difference. Yeah, but again, as I say, as drastic as it seems, the difference wouldn't have seemed as drastic at the time. I know that sounds odd, but remember, you're already starting from the assumption that creation is the work of a secondary principle, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you're right. Generally, both Christians and pagans, or Jews, Christians, and pagans, would affirm that this secondary principle was continuous with the divine and good and benevolent in all his purposes. So the demiurge of the Timaeus is, is a good creator, you know, and and uh, Hellenistic Judaism, that you know, like Philo's, that has a Logos in it, understands the Logos as the Son of God, you know, as, as the Deftros Theos. But, uh, you know, and, and so on the one hand, yes, it's a radical difference, but it's, but again, it's not, it, it, it's not as inconceivably radically perverse in the context of the time as it seems to us now after two, two, two millennia of Christian orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, yes, the goodness of creation, the goodness of the creator. Still, I mean, they, they, you know, there is language that, that could go the other way in the New Testament. The God of this age, you know, the, the God of this, you know, of this world is uh, the, the ruler of this world. You know, it's not... Um, you know, it, it, it's pretty strong language, uh, too, and at its at its most dualistic pitch, mm-hmm. uh, it can be taken to an extreme. It, now, but 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 what, when you mention the God of the Old Testament, the God of Hebrew Scripture, there's there's an interesting thing, though, isn't it? Because this becomes a hermeneutical issue for for Christians and Jews at the, of the time. 
you could argue that many of the Gnostics were the first fundamentalists because they they read the Genesis narrative and and much else there literally. So you know, uh, whereas Origen or Augustine would feel perfectly confident in saying, well, it's not really the case that God had to call out to Adam and Eve to see where they were because he was unaware of it. Mm-hmm. To the Gnostic readers, you know, the text means just what it says. He's kind of dumb. He, uh, you know, the, the, the God who created Adam and Eve uh, is not omniscient, is not omnipotent, and he's not benign. And, uh, you know, uh, let's be honest, most Christians... When they pick up the book of the Genesis, pick up the Eden narrative, actually read right over it. You know, and this isn't just a matter of translation because even the standard translations can't hide the fact that in the original story, uh, Yahweh is is not a good god. I mean, he uh, he you know he's he's uh, at the mythological level. Uh, he creates a garden where the gods, he and the other gods, the Elohim, keep uh, the trees that keep them immortal and give them the wisdom to know what's good and bad, not in a moral sense, but what are good things and what bad things. And then when the snake, who is a snake, you know, not, not the devil, there's no concept of the devil at the time these books were written, when the snake tells the truth, you know, Yahweh has lied in the original myth. The snake tells the truth. Uh, he, Yahweh runs to the other gods in in panic, saying, look, they've already eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good news. So they know they're naked. They know that we're, you know, we've got the good things and they're just uh, a pair of naked peasants that we've created in order to tend a garden for us without good pay or benefits. Uh, what if they should eat from the other tree, the tree that would make them immortal like the gods? They could overthrow us. So we've got to kick them out of the garden quickly. Okay. Now, the church fathers saw that, and you know they they were part of that late antique tradition that says, "Well, you allegorize, not because you think that the authors of the original text intended you to allegorize, but because that's what inspiration is. Inspiration is." As much a matter of how you read the text as how they were written, and that what and that you know the allegorical reading. You once you establish the literal reading, and all that means is establishing what the words on the page say. Then you're free to seek the the spiritual fruits that can be won from this story, and you get the incredibly rich exegesis say of. Augustine on the literal level of Genesis or Origin on the spiritual reading of Genesis, you know, gives us of Gregory of Nyssa, others. The Gnostics, by, by, by contrast, were having none of it. They were literalists. They were fundamentalists. Unlike our fundamentalists, though, apparently they had the moral uh, intelligence to be horrified by what they saw. Um, so, you know, when they, when they gave this text a literal reading, all they could say was, well, this is not the Savior God of Jesus Christ, clearly. This is some strange, malevolent demiurge. So they connected that to the God of this world, the archon of this cosmos from the New Testament. They, you know, that's, they connected him to the creator God depicted in the Eden narrative. Uh, if, you're, if you're a fundamentalist, that would seem to be not 
if you if you're reading if you insist on reading literally in this way without without any sense of the different levels of 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 hermeneutics that the ancient world uh, encouraged in the reading of sacred texts, then that's not an unreasonable supposition. These Gnostic groups have been used by various people as a as a source um, in different ways. Michael McClymond, uh mm-hmm. currently, and then historical figures such as F.C. Bauer appropriated the diffuse nature of Gnosticism in order to cast it as either the, the true source of Christian universalism, as in the, as, as in the case of Michael McClyman, or in the case of F.C. Bauer, as a kind of found, foundation for the philosophical school of German idealism. So let me just ask you, is it really intellectually tenable to cast Gnosticism as a foundation either for Christian universalism or for German idealism? Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, well, the former is ridiculous. I mean, there's no evidence of a Gnostic universalism. In fact, all the evidence that we have points in quite the opposite direction. But let me get back to that. As, as for the issue of German idealism, uh, this was a sort of fashionable reading that, that, that uh, came into uh, vogue in the first quarter, first half of the 19th century uh, from figures like uh, Neander and Mate and, and, as you mentioned, S.C. Bauer. And part of it was because uh, so much of the Gnostic mythology that had been recovered to that point, or that was reported from ancient sources, rather, was about a fall in the heavenly places and the divine pleroma. And uh, now, this is a common trope in, in, in late antique thought anyway. I mean, it's the, that there was a heavenly fall. But somehow this got construed as, as being an image of a dynamic history within the divine, within God himself. And even in, in and, and you'll find this to this day, scholars who are just influenced by this habit of thought will say that, you know, that, that, that as a result of this fall within the so-called divine plenitude, uh, God comes to know himself or, you know, or, or in emanating himself in the heavenly places, he comes to know himself and so on and so forth. But this, you know, we just know this isn't what the Gnostics actually taught uh, because they're all, if anything, uh, much more, intent on on uh, insisting upon the absolute inaccessibility the absolute otherness and and changelessness and total simplicity of god most high and here you have to make that distinction in ancient usage that's greek usage especially but also as it's carried over into coptic you know, between god in the proper sense or theos theos in the arthros so having having the definite article, and just the word theos. And in a sense, I mean, remember early Jews, late antique Jews and Christians were willing to speak of all sorts of beings as gods in that other sense, angels, saints, whatever. Um, only God in the, you know, only God most high is theos, right? And in none of the Gnostic systems do we have 
a story in which God finds himself either in his emanations or through the tragic dynamism of a further fall or disruption within the Godhead. You know, in in various ways, the notion of a dynamic God falling himself, finding himself in that way, and even the sort of conflation of creation and fall, in various ways is present in the German idealist tradition, especially in the middle shelling. One could argue in a more refined and controlled and and uh, sophisticatedly retrieved way in Hegel, especially in the period of the phenomenology. But all of that comes really, in a sense, into German thought, as Hegel himself recognized from Jakob Burma. Uh, Hegel, you know, when Hegel writes about Valentinus, he sees absolutely, he finds him an interesting figure, but he doesn't see any any link between his thought and and that, or that of you know that that of Valentinus or his school, and he was right. Um, the uh, the historians who who more and more uh, promoted this notion were just on one hand a little bit philosophically unsophisticated. They didn't really understand, well, even Schelling, much less Hegel, with quite the depth one might like. But also they had. Uh, somehow conflated the idea of, of a fall within the heavenly order, the heavenly pleroma uh, at, the, at its lower end with, with the notion of a God, a most high God who enters into history and enters into the dynamisms of, fi- of the finite and who comes to himself or a God who becomes. And that's simply, that is simply the you know the absolute antithesis of of it's actually orthodox Christianity comes much closer to that because they, you know at least in the orthodox narratives you have a story of a God who really pours himself out he may not have to become who he is through through the probations of history nonetheless there's a real kenesis of the divine uh, you know a, a, an entry into a, a more, much more dynamic union with creation than anything you find in the Gnostic texts. Uh, but that notion that, that there's some sort of occult continuity between the sensibility of the Gnostic schools and, and German idealism is one of the myths that's been hardest to dispel from the scholarship and also one that does the most damage to our understanding of those schools. It's simply wrong. Uh, and it also obscures the reality that the things that German idealism that a lot of modern Christians find either troubling or enticing are aspects of later developments in the Orthodox tradition, as well as, as I say, this influence of Jakob Burma, much more so than they are the, the reviviscence of some ancient teachings from the second and third centuries. As for the question of universalism, I mean, there, there we're just we're just wandering into total absurdity, and it really is a polemical project at that point. You mentioned Michael McClyman. I know Michael. He's not a class. He doesn't he doesn't know the ancient world. He doesn't know late antiquity. He's not a patristic scholar. He doesn't have the languages. The book he wrote, the gigantic two volume book he wrote on on. Um, universalism is, frankly speaking, an embarrassment. And there's no good scholar of late antiquity or of the church fathers or of many, or frankly of any of the periods that the book deals with in depth that, that, that holds that book in anything but scorn. 
And I wouldn't say that if it weren't for the bad faith that I know is behind the book. That is that all that Michael is trying to do is associate universalism with things that make people scared, like, oh, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, you know, whatever. Oh, um, here's a, an Indian Christian who believes in universalism, and he must have gotten it from Hinduism, which we know must be bad, you know, because Michael has a very parochial notion of orthodoxy. In point of fact, in that book, you'll find a plenty of things that are mainstays of orthodox tradition rejected because the author comes from a very sort of parochial, reformed tradition, and he knows very little about the fullness of Christian tradition. So he thinks all, all talk of a divine spark in human beings is immediately heretical. Well, I mean, divine spark, divine breath, divine image, who cares what you call it? It's anything but heretical. It's one of the foundations of, of Christian orthodoxy that the, the, the human beings already have, have the divine presence in them in some way or another. And trying to suggest that, say, Origen was a universalist because he was influenced by the Gnostics is one of the silliest claims I've ever seen anyone make. There's no good scholar, none, not a single competent patristic scholar who has anything but, but disdain for that whole argument. It's uh, anyone who actually knows Origen's writings knows where and why he got his ideas, you know, where he, how he read scripture. He's quite clear on why he reaches the conclusions he reaches. And he was a scourge of the so-called Gnostics. And that's ironic, yes, that, 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 in, that, in, that in Michael McClyman's book, The Devil's Redemption, that origin is sort of cast as the one who imported universalism from Gnosticism into Christianity, but actually origin opposed the Gnostics, and it was origin's way of teaching in, the in, church in part, to read. In part because they they discriminated among different classes of persons ontologically. They actually believed that there were those who were not redeemable. Right, so that was so. Origen was concerned; he was concerned about that, and uh, Origen was also concerned to, to that the church not lose the Hebrew scriptures, and right. so he became he became this tremendous advocate of the Hebrew scriptures. And if the Gnostic Christian group had had their way, they we would have been we would have been not had the Hebrew scriptures as part of the as part of our Bible. Yeah. I don't know how influential the McClyman book has been or not. You know, I'm sure that there are those who want to agree with him. I mean, I, I, I know the book will be praised by, by those who simply want to believe that, that Christian universalism is some sort of bizarre heterodox import from some shady region of, of late antique religion. But that's simply not what the scholarship shows. And it's, and, you know, Origen was a brilliant reader of scripture. I mean, he took 1 Corinthians 15 as the hermeneutical key to his understanding of creation and redemption. And he, and you see this also repeated with much more, and I, I think we see this, a lot of Origen's teachings rescued in uh, Gregory of Nyssa and his sister Macrina, who had access to texts we no longer do. 
you see this very systematic reading of, of Scripture in terms of Paul's language in that chapter. And it's, uh, you know, stunningly coherent. It also shows its roots. I mean, it, 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 we don't have to seek after the rationales of the sources of origins universalism because it's right there in his reading of Paul. It's simply that. It's not there in any of the Gnostic schools of which we know. I mean, this is simply a preposterous, and as I say, you know, to be honest, a rather sleazy imputation. I mean, it's just an attempt to try to discredit universalism in every age by suggesting some sort of shady association, and then by association, the universalists are guilty of, I don't know, celebrating black masses or what. Whatever the case, McClyman's book is a disgrace. It is not scholarship. It's a person who is not competent to do the scholarship. He's a historian of American religion with no training in the languages of the texts that he's dealing with, with no knowledge of He makes grotesque errors from beginning to end. In fact, when you get to the 20th century, it's almost worse. He deals with Bulgakov, and there's literally a passage in which he ascribes to Bulgakov by quoting from, uh, I'm trying to remember, maybe it's the comforter, I'm trying to remember, a paragraph where Bulgakov is describing a position that he is rejecting. That's how slovenly the scholarship of that book was. It was just a huge polemical campaign against universalism conducted by someone who simply did not have the credentials or or, or the training or the abilities to carry it off. And I, you know, I was shown, well, I won't go into that, but I mean, the thing is, it, it actually is a book that, that ought never to have been published. Uh, it, it should never, you know, it should have gone through a peer review because, it, uh, it, you know, it would not have survived a real peer review by competent scholars. Well, the thing that is sort of scary about it, it for those who might be investigating Christian universalism is you're reading about ancient patristic sources for it, and you're reading about biblical sources for it, and then you come along to this book, and and all of a sudden you're you're faced with sort of the bewildering world of Gnosticism as the source of it, and the impenetrable writings of Jacob Burma as uh, the modern. Well, Jacob Burma wasn't a universalist. That's the other thing. He, he again and again he keeps choosing. Uh, figures as the fathers of, of universalism who themselves were not universalists. We have no evidence. Burma speaks of hell uh, in a very conventional way. Now, maybe, I don't know, secretly he was a universalist. I, I don't know. But he certainly gives us no reason to believe he was. You know, well, William Law was a, a universalist, and it's true that William Law read and was impressed by Burma late in life. And so Michael draws the conclusion that somehow William Law's universalism is disproved by his interest in Burma. Um, George MacDonald read William Law's right, you know, edition of Burma late in life and used some of its imagery for Lilith. Okay, everyone read Burma. I mean, that was he was you know he was the, the sort of revolutionary figure in some ways. That everyone read. But but so what? I mean, that's that you know it it it, it it's 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 just a bizarre way of arguing that 
you know, it's an organ that, that, that everything is contaminated. Uh, and having been contaminated by a suspect source, therefore is already self-evidently false or aberrant or heretical. Mm-hmm. It's it's a childish way of arguing, and unfortunately, but you know, the funny thing is, I'll tell you the truth. Believe it or not, I never would have read, read written the book on universalism that I did had I not been at for one year a chair at uh, St. Louis, and I met Michael there who was writing this book, and I couldn't believe how preposterous his arguments were, both historical and logical i mean he's not a, he's not a trained philosopher either and i wish i wish one could convince him of that because there too his his errors are majestic and uh believe it or not he inspired me to write that book just in a, in a fit of peak <laughs> almost <laughs> petulantly and how silly uh the, you know what i was getting from him was this passion, this this you know, this sort of passionate opposition to universalism, has many many sources in people's personal psychologies. I'll say in his case, I don't think it's in any way a malevolent. I mean, I've met some people who are opposed to universalism because they really truly like the idea of hell. They like the idea that 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 they'll be among the few who get to uh, you know. Get, who get the golden ticket, uh-huh. uh, and this this makes them distinctive. I, I bet that, but that's not what Michael is. I will say that right now. It's not malevolence in his case. He's just got this uh, rather, as I say, very unrefined parochial sort of Calvinist uh, vision of things fixed in the back of his mind. He has he's sure that that's the orthodox story that all 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 believing Christians should recognize. Uh, he can't imagine why anyone would doubt it, and he's just going with it. Uh, and he sees universalism as some great and horrific uh, um, corruption of the gospel. So I can say that that much is in good faith, even if I think the way he argues is in very bad faith. Well, that is truly ironic. <laughs> that that you were at St. Louis University at the same time. I see it as providential. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe and you that, know. I always say here, here's here, let me be as self-promoting as possible. Maybe God put me there so that I could <laughs> I could I could uh, you know combat the darkness. Uh, well, here here I kind of thought that his that you inspired his work. In a way. Oh no, he'd been he'd, he'd been laboring away on this gigantic white elephant of a book for for ages already at that point, and um, we had lots of email exchanges. I mean, just some of the arguments he made for why universal, you know, he would come up with a new bizarre, you know, argument like universalists are binitarians; they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. And, you know, and then when he when he explains what he means by this, of course, it's just you know wildly out of left field, you know, and and that just kept happening over and over again, uh, you know. And I realized he was looking for any any bludgeon he could find, anything, uh, and you know, and of course, it was ineffectual in part because the arguments were bad, but because he couldn't seem to understand that 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 you know 
orthodoxy to me is only plausible to the degree that it affirms universalism. If I were to discover that universalism is genuinely unorthodox in essence, I would just say that orthodoxy is therefore proved wrong. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not going to, it's not going to sway me that sort of rhetorical trick, but it is, that is basically what he was engaged in doing. He was just trying to find any way of convincing readers that the sources of universalism are always from contaminated wells and therefore it's all fruit of the poison tree to mix the two metaphors. <laughs> well, I, I want to thank you for uh, your work on going over this and over this and over this uh, material and, uh, and, and writing on it. Uh, but I, I get a sense from your, um, from your latest article on subject that your wrists are just worn out from writing oh, yeah. on, on Gnosticism and that you're ready well, to I, move I, on. Yeah, I mean, I, I did it because I was asked to, and I thought it was worth thinking through for a number of reasons. One is, as I said, I have a, a sort of Gnostic fantasy novel coming out in December. Uh, so maybe it's good advance advertising, I don't know. But yeah, no, now I'm, I, I'd like to put the topic aside for a while and, as you say, talk about other things. Well, you mentioned Japanese aesthetics, literature, and most importantly of all, the memory of Frank Robinson. So anything you'd like to say about those topics just briefly? Well, I mean, I, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, literary concerns have always been more important to me than, than any others, I have to say. It's just, it's an accident of fate that I've written as much as I have on theological topics. But, um, you know, you, you can get, you can torture yourself indefinitely, you know, with these arguments because you're not going to sway people from their positions. Uh, so, for every the sake of everyone's sanity, they should they they, they should turn away from these arguments uh, at regular intervals at least, and concentrate on say I don't know what's the relation between Yugen and Mononoawari in in Japanese aesthetics or. Would Frank Robinson have won the Triple Ground two years in a row had he not been injured in 1967 from concussion and uh, injury to his eye? And or would Carl Yastrzemski still have pulled it off in '67? You know, these are important questions. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, the 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 these the, these issues like you know how gnostic is modernity. At the end of the day, that's, that's, that, that turns into uh, a sort of war of empty abstractions if, if, you, if you let it, and probably there are better things to do with our time. That said, universalism is not a Gnostic phenomenon. <laughs> it's, just, it's just silly. That's just silly. Well, Dr. Hart, I want to express on behalf of your subscribers how much we are enjoying getting a weekly communique from you uh, through your newsletter, and also how interesting it is for us to be able to submit our questions about your articles and then to see the answers that you give us. So everyone, if you haven't already, go and subscribe to Leaves in the Wind and gain access to Dr. Hart's articles on Gnosticism, and you can even submit your own questions. And also for those particularly interested in Christian universalism, I encourage you to go to Al Kimmel's blog, eclectic orthodoxy and take a look at Dr. Hart's review of Michael McClyman's book. Dr. Hart's article is there entitled Gnosticism and Universalism, 
a review of The Devil's Redemption. So thank you again, uh, Dr. Hart, for, uh, for lighting the way for us and to uh, helping us also to, to, you know, to think broadly, enjoy life and Japanese aesthetics and baseball and to, and to not just think about this, uh, this, you know, the ancient world all the time and to, you know, to enjoy all of fully, to fully enjoy all of life and the gifts that it brings to us. Well, thanks for having me on. I Sorry if I got a little bit polemical there about the devil's redemption. It's just, you know, I don't mean it, Michael. You're a great guy. You know. <laughs> well, I do take it that these are passionate, that everybody's passionate here, and uh, I don't know. It's not personal animus. It, it, I mean, it is. I do think that when something is very badly done, it's right to say that it was very badly done. And when it's done for the wrong motives, it's okay to say that as well. As long as you acknowledge that that doesn't give you a, a window into a person's soul. Well, I think, uh, I think we all appreciate the way that you're able to, I'll say, speak the truth in love. Okay. <laughs> if I can, if I can put it that way. All right. Well, thank you so much for the time. All right. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.